If you have your copy of the scriptures, whether that's in a book form or on your phone, open it up. Let's look at it together. You can turn to Revelation chapter 12, 13, 14, and the first five, four verses of chapter 15. You got me? So we're going to look at this section, 12, 13, 14, through the first four verses of chapter 15. Now you might say, well, Dave, you talked about chapter 12 last week. You're right. And I hope you'll remember a little bit of it because we're going to bring it into these chapters today because they all fit together. This is the next section in the book of Revelation. So you'll notice that I'm only going to read a couple verses. So that's why I'm saying please keep your Bibles open because I'm going to read a little bit this, mo this morning, um, but I'm going to refer to all the other stuff that I'm not going to read. That way if you have your Bible open or you're looking at it, you can see what I'm talking about. Make sense? So I'm just going to read two verses this morning. Before I do that, I want to remind you of our four preliminary principles, and I hope that you are getting so mad about this that you're ready just to tell me what they are yourself because I reviewed so much. Because unless you understand these four preliminary principles, you will not understand Revelation properly. It'll be like buttoning up your shirt, starting with the wrong button in the wrong hole. You're still going to have a shirt on. It's going to look weird. It's going to be uncomfortable. You don't get these four preliminary principles down, your interpretation, you're still going to have an interpretation of Revelation. It's just going to be all wonky. And it's going to not, it's not going to fit right. And it's not going to fit with the rest of Scripture. So, preliminary principles, here they are, number, the, all four. Number one, God always completes or finishes what he starts, whichever word you choose. God always finishes what he starts. The way he set up the world in, in, in the way he set up the world in Genesis one and two is the way the world is going to be. Our rebellion and sin can't even stop it. So the whole point of Revelation is God finishes what he starts, and it's showing us that. Two, we have to view time the way God views time. When you read the New Testament, you will find that the last days started with the coming of Jesus. So Revelation is not the starting point to begin to tell us about the last days. Revelation is a summary of the last days that have been happening since the coming of Christ for 2,000 years and however long it will be before he returns, Jesus returns. Revelation is a summary of the last days. It doesn't start telling us about it. We started the last days with the coming of Christ. That's the way God views time. If you need references for that, Hebrews 1, Acts 2, plenty of others. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. Three, when we come to a book like Revelation, our posture should be humble. We should have a humble posture coming to this book. There are things we know, and there are things that we don't know. Revelation is not a code book. It is a picture book. So our hope is not to crack the code. Our hope is to get the images and for those images and those pictures to fire up our imagination, in particular and specifically our gospel imagination, so that we are on fire in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives with the gospel. Fourthly and finally, and this perhaps is the most important preliminary principle, Jesus did it. Jesus actually accomplished something through his death and resurrection. He actually accomplished something. He didn't die to make you savable. 
He didn't die to make salvation possible. You will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. His death and resurrection purchased and accomplished something so that the book of Revelation is not primarily about Satan and evil and darkness and how bad things are going to get and that right the last minute Jesus swoops in and fixes everything. That's not the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is unfolding the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection for all of history. Evil's real. Evil will grow. Darkness will grow. We'll feel it. You'll feel it. You'll see it. I'll see it. But it never gets the last word because Christ has done something. So unless you actually believe Christ accomplished something through his death and resurrection, button up the shirt wrong. Revelation is going to seem way, way slanted toward darkness and evil. And you won't see how it is relative to Christ and what he has done and who he is. So those are our four preliminary principles. So this morning I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 of chapter 13 uh, because this is the application for all these chapters. All right? Listen to this. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive... To captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Did you hear that? I want to read it again. And I hope that you'll go back and read these chapters. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Got it? Now let's see why in the world God would say this to us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have loved us with an everlasting love, a never giving up, always and forever love. Help us to revel in that love that is not unqualified affirmation, but it is a love that brings us to Christ. It is a real love that pushes back on our expectations and hopes and dreams, and it is a love that gives us an identity through Jesus that we can't find, earn, or merit anywhere else. So, Holy Spirit, help us to praise Jesus and understand more of this unconditional love, even if it means that we get pushed back on this morning so that we might follow your word, Lord, and endure and continue to believe for your glory. Amen. Have you all ever been looking for a car? Have you ever been car shopping before? Anybody? If you're like me, when you go to shop for cars, you do a bunch of research to find out what kind of car you want. And in doing that research, you read all kinds of experts on what they say about the vehicle you're trying to find. And then if you're further like me, you kind of go on the internet and go to all the car sites that you want to and just look, 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 look. And you realize that there are a lot of cars you can find. And when you look at the pictures of those cars, they look really good. And then you realize not every car can look this good, right? 
And then it dawns on you, perhaps maybe faster than it does for me, oh yeah, these dealerships and people that sell these cars, they hire professional photographers. And if they can make me look good in a picture, certainly they can make a car look good, right? So you see all these pictures all the time on the internet about these cars and think, but, but how do I know that this is legit? How do I know that this car really looks this good? How do I know that it looks that good? How do I know that this is a car worth pursuing and potentially buying? How do I know that this isn't a scam? How do I know that this is legit? And to, to extrapolate that into a bigger question of our lives, how do you recognize a counterfeit? I mean, if buying a car can be complicated because the pictures aren't always what they seem, what about life? How do you know a counterfeit? How would you recognize it? And what would you do to not only identify it, but fight against the counterfeit and cling to what's real? Well, this section in Revelation 12, 13, 14 through verse 4 of chapter 15 is telling us about, about a counterfeit. And it's telling us that we can identify the counterfeit, and it's telling us that we need to fight this counterfeit. You got me? That's the point this morning. These chapters are telling us that there's a counterfeit, and they're telling us how we can identify it and fight against it. That's the point. So when we look at these chapters together, we're going to try to see what John sees. He's the human author of this. We're going to try to see what he sees, and then we're going to answer the question, so what? And both of those things, seeing what John sees and the so what, are meant to explain that there's a counterfeit. Here's how you identify it, and here's what you can do to fight against it. So you can cling to the real thing. You got me? That's our roadmap. That's where we're going today. So get out your blank canvas, and let's start painting some more. All right? Because images are everywhere in this book. So let's try to see what John sees. So you notice that in chapter 13, the first 10 verses, John sees a beast that comes out of the sea. In verses 11 through 18 of chapter 13, John sees another beast that comes from the land. So what is he, what, what is this? Well, you notice and remember that chapter 12 and 13 are connected. John tells us what he sees at the end of chapter 12 and then in verse 13, he's actually at the seashores observing this beast coming out of the sea. So these things are all connected. What John does when he describes the sea beast, which oh, by the way, has horns and multiple heads, if you notice, if you read that kind of detail, what John is doing is he is borrowing imagery from the book of Daniel. And Daniel describes this kind of multiple monsters. And what John does is mash all of them together from Daniel chapter 7. And he presents them as one big beast here coming out of the sea in Revelation 13, the first 10 verses. And notice that verse 2 tells you that this is a beast that has a throne. And that authority was given to this beast out of the sea from the beast in chapter 12. You see, what John is describing here is this. When you go back and understand Daniel and you, when you understand what's going on here, John is saying this beast that comes out of the sea that has this throne, he's talking about governmental authorities. He's talking about the state. He's talking about government. 
His original audience would understand that as the Roman Empire. Daniel was referring to the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and those who would come after. John is picking that up and saying, it's still true. There's a governing authority out there and it has been given a message and its message is to blaspheme God. Its message is anti-God. That's what the text says about this beast that comes out of the sea. And the purpose of this beast is to gain allegiance so that this beast, the beast that comes out of the sea, the governing authorities want your allegiance. They want you to follow them. They want you to, to receive your identity from them. They want you to value who they are and what they do and how they operate. Wants worship. Now, if you want to connect this even more deeply, I'm happy to do that. I'd be happy to talk with you afterwards. But just remember these letters that John writes to the seven churches that Jesus writes to them. Remember? Remember Ephesus? What was one of the temptations? To worship the state. It was a requirement. John is specifically addressing his audience saying, beware. Because the governing authorities want your allegiance. The second beast, the one that's on the land in verses 11 through 18 this beast does some strange, excuse me, strange things. If you go back and read the details, that, that this, this land beast does miraculous signs. Why? Because he wants you to follow the sea beast. He wants you to follow the government. So he is witnessing to the government saying, hey, look at how powerful I am. Why am I this way? Because you need to worship the government. You need to follow the governing authorities in the state. You need to have your allegiance with the state. Well, you notice if you read further that you'll find that these beasts are, are also connected to something else. Something that perhaps you've heard about before, even if you've never studied Revelation at all. The mark of the beast. At the end of chapter 13, you find the mark of the beast. It's identified by this number six, six. Six, and then if you read around, you'll find that it is marked on the forehead and also on the hand, on the arm, on the hand. What in the world is this? This is a mark that's identified with these two beasts. What is it? What is this mark? Well, let me tell you, just in case you're sitting on the edge of your seat and you wonder, it's not the vaccine. <laughs> it's not a microchip. If you're a little bit older, it wasn't a barcode. I could go on and on. It's not the vaccine. It's not the chip. Don't listen to that mess. Remember, this is a book of images. Numbers are always symbolizing something. They're always communicating to you a deep meaning the number seven represents perfection, right? And completion, right? Well, when I went to school, I learned that six, the number six, is less than the number seven. So instead of being perfect like the number seven, it is the number six, which is communicating imperfection. It falls short of seven. It falls short of perfection, and in the Bible, when you see repetition, what does that communicate? Emphasis for 
emotional connection. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, God is holy, holy, holy. Repetition is meant to communicate this is true. Pay attention. So the mark of the beast is not a microchip. It's not a vaccine. The, the, the mark is perfect imperfection. Perfect imperfection. Now, there are those who have tried to turn this into a code. There's a, there's a, a word, an idea out there called gematria, where you assign a certain numeric value to various letters. And that's gone on for a century, millennia, really. This is not a code. It's not. What John is communicating here is that this mark is spiritual in nature. It's not physical. It parallels the mark in chapter 14 in verse 1, that those who follow God have a mark on their heads. It is spiritual in nature. It is meaning when it communicates that this mark is not just 666, which is communicating perfect imperfection. It is saying that this mark is on the head and on the hands. It's saying that it is a mark on the head, meaning it is an ideology. And it's on the hand because the hands are living out the ideology. So you see, the hope is to worship the government. And that is an ideological matter, and that is lived out through hands and feet. John is saying this is the message that is attached to the beast. Then to go even further, if you're willing to see some more connections. What John is actually communicating is that this is the counterfeit. This is the counterfeit. Remember chapter 12 was picturing for us the red dragon, right? Satan, the devil, remember that? What is his job? He wants to be God, but he can't be. Then the second beast who works with him, the one that comes out of the sea, this one has a mortal wound. Hmm, does that sound familiar? Sound kind of like Jesus that was mortally wounded? And this one has a message of anti-gospel where Jesus came to proclaim the gospel? And then this third beast is the one that does signs and wonders because it wants you to believe the message of the beast that comes out of the sea who is given authority from the red dragon. Do you see the counterfeit? This is the unholy trinity. This is the counterfeit gospel. This is the counterfeit ideology. This is follow the red dragon. This is the red dragon at times using the governing authorities to do his will. And this is the unholy spirit who is trying to convince you that you ought to obey and follow and have allegiance to the state. Now, then we change and shift to chapter 14. Look at verse 6 and following. What you find is that there are three angels and the first angel proclaims the everlasting gospel. Beautiful. The second angel declares that Babylon has fallen. Meaning inherently, the systems of this world are fallen. 
Babylon has fallen, and it even, John even, God even through John helps us understand what it means that Babylon is fallen and why it's fallen by communicating to us a way of living life that either, either we know experientially ourselves or we know others who have. Notice how he connects the idea of alcohol with sexual immorality. As if to say, this is the message of the great counterfeit gospel. Abuse alcohol because it will diminish all of your inhibitions. And then follow your desires and satisfy whatever desire you have, sexually or otherwise. And we all know if we've lived that life, if we struggle with that life, if we know people that have or are struggling with that life, that just satisfying all your desires is really, really empty. Doesn't get anywhere. Except seemingly heap a whole lot of shame and guilt. Right? It's empty. To live for self doesn't work. To think that governing authorities can provide soul satisfaction isn't real. The quest for power doesn't get you anywhere except wanting more power. And to take in that message will only leave you empty. Then the third angel speaks and talks of judgment, eternal judgment. And mentions to us and reminds us that eternal judgment is real. It is everlasting. There is a place. It is a place of torment. Everlasting judgment is real. We've talked about judgment a few weeks ago. And we're going to talk about it again next week. So we'll come back to that idea. But it's there to take in. That judgment and final judgment is true. Well, that's what's pictured in these chapters. So what? What does this mean? What does this mean for my life? If this is talking about a counterfeit, how in the world can I identify this counterfeit? And how in the world can I fight against this counterfeit? And the fact that my heart is constantly drawn to counterfeit. How can we do this? Well, chapter 13, verse 10 is real, isn't it? It's a call. It's a call to action. It's a call to action to endure and to believe. But before we get to the primary application, I need to tell you two truths. Before we get to the primary application of the so what and how we can identify and how we can fight the counterfeit, I need to tell you these two preliminary, these two truths. The first one is this. There is a difference between accuracy and precision. The book of Revelation is 100% accurate. The book of Revelation is not out for precision. So if you try to, to um, turn Revelation into a book of precision, you'll miss it. It's a picture book. It's not a code book. It's accurate, but it's not precise. So what John is talking about and what God is telling us through John has always been true and will always be true. Second, God is not anti-government. Hear me. Hear me. Some of you may have callings to serve the government. 
hear me. God is not anti-government. But hear this. God is above government. God is sovereign over government. His kingdom cannot fail. Every other government is earthly and fallen and unstable. God is not anti-government, but Satan's game is to draw us into thinking that the government is more important than it is. Satan's game is to get us to be obsessed with the government. Satan's game is at times to use the governing authorities to pursue and at times persecute followers of Christ. Hasn't that happened for 2,000 years? Didn't that happen before Christ? Satan loves to use governing authorities to pursue and at times persecute followers of Jesus. But he also loves to use government to allure followers of Christ into thinking that the gospel is equal with government. To think that it is the gospel plus government. He loves for us to be more loyal to our government than to the kingdom of God. That's what he wants. And he's telling us all the time, want this, want that. Pursue power because it is so alluring because we think no matter what your view of government is, at some point we all end up thinking that the government is the solution. It's either the solution to fix all my problems or it's the solution to make me comfortable or the solution to make me happy or make me fulfilled or whatever it is. That's Satan's game. And God is not anti-government, but he's way above it and he's sovereign over it. And we are always tempted by the allurement of power and the quest for control. And God says... No, that's counterfeit. Here's something that I've read a few years ago that's really been helpful for me, and perhaps it will be helpful for you. Our loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom must always exceed our loyalty to an earthly agenda. Our loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom must always exceed our loyalty to an earthly agenda. We should feel at home with people who share our faith but not our politics. Even more than we do with people who share our politics but not our faith. That has helped me so much. Well, here's the big application. What do we do? How do we identify and how do we fight the counterfeit? Chapter 13, verse 10 means something, right? If anyone has ears, let him hear. This is a call to action, right? In other words, what does it mean to endure? What does it mean to believe? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. You'll never identify the counterfeit and fight the counterfeit if all you do is study the counterfeit. We'll never identify and be able to fight it in our own lives if we only study the counterfeit and are obsessed with the counterfeit. 
Because to be obsessed with a counterfeit is to be obsessed with what is unstable. And we have a tendency to be so distracted by what is unstable rather than obsessing over what is invincible. And beloved, do you remember what's invincible? Have you forgotten? It's Jesus. It is the gospel. It is his church. And if all we do is study the counterfeit, we will be distracted and we'll be all tied up with that rather than the kingdom of God. So what does it mean to endure? And what does it mean to believe? How can we identify and fight this? Well, here are two things. The first is we must reorient our lives around Jesus and the gospel incessantly. We need to reorient our lives around Jesus and the gospel all the time. So let's take things in the Bible and try to press them into our lives. Will you do this with me? Write, write these down if you want. Think about them if you want. Add to them if you want. Improve upon them. Beloved, if salvation is by grace, where has grace been just so real in your life recently? Where? If you want to identify a counterfeit, if you want to fight the counterfeit, then let's talk about grace. Where is grace? Taking your breath away. Where is the grace of God and his unconditional love become more precious to you? Where is it becoming more precious to me? Beloved, if the Bible says that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, where has God been kind to you by granting you repentance lately? When you look at your spouse, when you look at your friends, when you look at your job, when you look at your children, when you look at your family, where has God been giving you repentance? If you want to fight the counterfeit, the counterfeit never wants you to admit you're wrong, right? The gospel says, oh, this is a gift that I give you repentance. So where are we repenting and learning to repent? Where do you see that your heart in deeper ways is drawn to idols? Other places to find your identity other than Jesus and what he has done. Where do you see that your heart is drawn toward idols? That is getting the gospel deeper into your heart and life. Is to think about how prone we are to reach and cling to idols. What about friendship? You want to get the, go the gospel deeper into your life? Where are your friends that you get to talk about Jesus with? Where are your friends that are helping hold you accountable through the gospel? Where, where? Reorient your life around the gospel. Jesus says to love your enemies, right? You know what the counterfeit says? Your enemies are wrong and they're terrible and it's okay to hate them. Jesus says we're to love our enemies. Why? Because we were the enemy. And if he loved us when we were the enemy, we ought to be able to love our enemies. So where is God drawing your heart toward your enemies? Because if he's not drawing your heart for the enemies, you're probably not recognizing the counterfeit. And you're probably not fighting it. 
Because to love God means that we love our enemies. And we're drawn to people. So we have to reorient our lives around the gospel and Jesus all the time. Where are God's promises more precious to you now? Which promises are you clinging to tomorrow morning when you wake up or today when you woke up? Which one? Reorient your life around the gospel and Jesus. That's how you patient. Lee, that's how you patiently endure. That's how we believe on a daily basis. And the second thing is this, celebrate. Celebrate. When you go back through and read these chapters, what you will find and what we talked about is that in the first five verses of chapter 14 and the first four verses of chapter 15, guess where we are? The throne. In the midst of of everything that is going on, the unholy trinity trying to get its message out and secure followers. In the midst of the angels proclaiming the eternal gospel and that Babylon has fallen and judgment is real, what are God's people doing? Celebrating. They're at the throne. This is the one reference point for the entire universe is the throne of God. And God's people are there celebrating and praising God. We have to be a people that know how to celebrate if we are going to identify and fight against the counterfeit. I've told you this before, but I need to say it again. Some of the best parenting advice I've ever gotten is what? You remember this? Catch your kids doing good. You know why that's been so helpful for me? Because I'm really good at catching my kids doing bad. I'm analytical. I think about what they're doing and I have more years of experience. So I feel entitled and able to identify everything that my kids are doing that is wrong. I've got a problem. I'm much more bent toward that than celebrating. I'm much more bent toward identifying what they're doing wrong than catching them doing good. And you know what it's like to celebrate? Do you know what it's like to catch someone doing good? Because they're related. Whenever I see my kids doing well, doing something that's right, and I identify it and say it, Owen oh, Dabney Bergen, I'm so proud of you. And I am. My kids make better decisions than I did at their age. But I've got to tell them, I've got to celebrate with them that I see good things in them. I've got to celebrate. Does that make sense to you? What are you celebrating? Because the only way to identify the counterfeit and fight against it is not only to reorient, but to celebrate the gospel and celebrate what is true. And here's what's true. Christ has come. Christ was crucified. Christ was raised. Christ is ascended to the throne of God. And Christ is returning. And Christ will make all things new. That is worth celebrating. It's the only message in the world that's invincible. I hope you're not getting tired of me saying that either. Everything else is unstable. Everything else is a distraction. Christ is worth celebrating. And to put a fine point on this, specific to what we're doing today, guess what we get to do together, beloved? We get to celebrate. We're coming to the table. We get to celebrate that we belong to Jesus. And then do you know what we're going to do after that? We're going to sing. And guess what we're going to sing? 
it is well with my soul. So I hope, I hope that you will want to celebrate Christ, not only at the table through the bread and the cup, but in singing together that my sins in part, not that my sins not in part, but the whole were nailed to the cross and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, will you celebrate? And will that be more of a bigger part of your life? Let's start. Let's celebrate together.